I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Well, good morning. This is a... Pretty cool uh, spread of people in this room today. Um, I've got uh, like pretty heavy hitters here, so big heavy hitters. I've got uh, Joe Hockey, a mate of mine from a long, 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 long time ago, but better known as a treasurer of this great country of ours and uh, now retired from politics. We're going to have a talk to him. We've got Diego Morales. Now, Diego is the global head of innovation for J&J Group. Um, welcome, Diego. Good morning, Nick Boris. Heaviest hitter. Have you said it? Chris Oregon, who we've had here last year, uh, last week. Chris is from J&J, Johnson Johnson, and uh, he's the CEO. And we have Gavin Fox-Smith from J&J, who is head of devices. Correct. Is that Australian New Zealand, Gavin? That is Australian New Zealand, yes. And, uh, and of course, devices are an important issue in this country, well, globally, for, and particularly important for uh, J&J across the world. And what we're going to do in two parts, we're going to listen to uh, Joe Hockey. Now, I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated to have Joe Hockey come into this room um, at 7 a.m. on a Thursday morning, the old piano room, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, it's it's uh, rare we get the the level of the treasurer of the country to come into this into this room, so we really appreciate John. I actually want to hear what he's doing, and I want to know what happened and, uh, and what he's going to do for the future. And I actually got a few questions for Joe about, for Australians who listen to this, about what he thinks that we should be doing in this country about property prices and various other things because people really would like to get the deep inside of a treasurer of this country for many years. Okay, I think we actually might start with Joe. Um, now, bear in mind, this is a conversational thing, so, you know, if anybody wants to have a crack at Joe or even uh, oh, add to up. what he's saying... <laughs> where, where did that come from? <laughs> it's all right, Joe. That's it's all cool. part of the deal. It's all cool, man. <laughs> hey, Joe, before we get started, I might just remind the listeners of the event we've got going on next week as well. Sure, Nick, go for it. Yeah, so um, for everyone that didn't get a chance to overpitch, um, up, you know, one of the partners of the event, um, Investable, uh, with us, are putting on an event next week um, at the Cub Network down the road in Potts Point. Um, details on the website um, for anyone that wants to come along. There'll be workshops, the chance for you to pitch, um, and also all the proceeds that we that we raise from the day from ticket sales will be donated to uh, a really worthwhile charity that's kind of synergistic with the show. It's called Kid Pro- Kid uh, Club Kidpreneur. Sorry, it's a hard one to say. Kidpreneur. Um, it's a, a not for profit that supports um, mentoring young children on business skills and how to become entrepreneurs. Okay, thanks, Nico. Um- Forever Nick's still producing me and uh, making sure I do the right thing. <laughs> good son, good boy. All right, let's get on with it. Uh, Joe Hockey. I remember, Joe, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I and another guy had lunch maybe 30 years ago, 
might be 30 years ago. Huh. Uh, it was down in um, East Sydney. It was across the road from Bill and Tony's. And you just started your career as a... Uh, well, you didn't just start your career, but you were a young politician and uh, you certainly hadn't reached the heights that you reached today. Let's go back 30 years. Did you ever think to yourself that one day you would be treasurer of this country? No, I thought I'd be prime minister. <laughs> cool. I'm serious. Well, I, I, you've I got to have ambition. And, uh, you know, I went into politics wanting to serve. I had to have a degree of confidence in my own ability. Uh, I was made a minister, one of the youngest ever ministers, and I had financial services. Where, I remember it. Uh, you remember in 1998, uh, it was a, a whole different ball game. Uh, and uh, as one of the youngest ministers, by someone who didn't, I didn't necessarily share exactly the same political philosophy with, that was John Howard, the fact that he promoted me and gave me a great deal of confidence. And uh, uh, so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd get somewhere if I hung in there long enough. Uh, and did a good job along the way, and, and it did work that way. But uh, in the end, fate has its hand. Yeah, but you did it. Well, I, and, <clears throat> and, and it's good, but, you know, uh, <clears throat> inscribed uh, in St Paul's Cathedral in London are uh, some Latin words to the effect, if you're looking for a monument, look around you. And the fathers of London said to Sir Christopher Wren, the architect's son, what can we do to pay tribute to your father for this unbelievable cathedral? And uh, he said, look, if you're looking for monuments, look around you. So I never judge it on the title you have because I've seen lots of incompetent people have great shingles that said they were a particular minister or a treasurer or a prime minister. What matters is what you achieve. Mm. And, and, and do you think, Joe, I mean, like a lot of people listen to the show, um, have ambition. And yeah. we talked about 5,000 people early on who try to get into the Uber pitch with ambition to do something to change their lives. For those people listening, I mean, how important is it to have an ambition like that and actually to back yourself? I mean, you come from a migrant father yeah. or mother. Yeah, your dad a was a migrant. My father came out from, he was born in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. came out as a refugee to Australia in 1948. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get 3rd of September 1948. And I don't want to get, well, it's the same year my father came to yeah. Australia, by yeah. the way, after yeah. the Greek Civil War. And, and yeah. I don't want to get all sort of weird about, uh, you know, inspiration and all that sort of crap. But, but you know, how important is it for people who are out there actually desperate to change their lives and do something better to drag themselves up to some other better position? How important is it for them to back themselves? Oh, well, if you don't back yourself, no one's going to back you. I mean, if you don't believe in yourself, mm-hmm. then no one's going to follow you. No one's going to invest in you. And, and y- y- you have to be bold in this world. I mean, what's happened is, uh, you know, my father's real estate agency was a great example for me. Uh, you know, I grew up in 1974, it nearly, it nearly went broke because, uh, uh, you know, the Whitlam government was in, it was, a disa- it was disastrous. And I remember Dad coming home, and I'm the youngest of four children, and he sat around the dinner table and he said, I think our business is going broke, we're going to lose our home. And, uh, you know, I, remember, I was only nine years of age. There was recession, 72, 73, Yeah, yeah, four. that's right. And I, I remember it. He started a real estate agency in 1969 in Narrenburn in Sydney. And at this, you know, sitting around the table, nine-year-old, dad comes home and says, we're going to lose our home. And mum, like so many other mothers, she said, well, like hell, Richard, to my father, we're all going to work. And so my, my um, you know, mother worked Saturdays and Sundays and, and all four kids had to go into the, uh, into the shop on a Saturday. We all had a job. Uh, my 
two brothers were responsible for driving people around and showing them real estate, even though they didn't have driver's licenses at the time. <laughs> My sister was responsible for uh, answering the phone and I had to sweep out the front of the shop and cut out the real estate ads out of the Herald. Uh, and um, the, the business survived. It paid for my education. I was the first of any of my family to go to university and went from there. And that was because, you know, we showed fortitude in the face of adversity. Everyone had to put their shoulder to the wheel. A lot of small businesses are family businesses, as you know. You can see it right here with your son. Mm-hmm. And and But the thing is, you've also got to be bold. And technology is the best friend of, of innovation that we could ever have imagined. Uh, and it's a great privilege now to be part of a generation that has the capacity to utilise global markets in the way that our parents could could never have dreamed of. But do you think, Joe, I mean, this, I put this to everybody, but do you think, and I'd like to know your view, do you think... Uh, tech- Mark, can I just say, I think just building on what Joe's talking about, about having ambition, we talk to our people all the time at J&J, nobody owns your career except yourself. And you've got to, you have got to believe in what you're doing. It doesn't matter whether you're a salesperson, a marketing person or whatever. And I think Joe's answer, you know, did he ever expect to get to be treasurer? No, he expected to be prime minister. You know, that level of ambition is actually something we should celebrate in Australia. And sometimes we don't celebrate that level of ambition. I agree with that. You I mean, know, that- and, and we work for an American company that does celebrate that. You go to the US... They, they push their people all the time and they celebrate people with Why ambition. do you think that is, Gavin? I mean, why do you guys think, why does us do Australians, Australian companies, Australians, maybe the government even, even, why don't we celebrate ambition or do we? I think in some ways, I, my personal view is I, I've, I've had a, my family immigrated from South Africa in the early 80s. So I, I've come to this country as an immigrant and I couldn't have hoped for more opportunity. And uh, I think in some ways we do celebrate ambition but I'm not sure that – I wonder if our younger generation feel that same desire to succeed and to succeed you are going to have to have not just bumps, sometimes you're going to hit a brick wall and you're going to fall over. Is it easier, Joe, today or harder? Well, the world's more complicated today than it was years ago. I mean, you know, when you and I entered the workforce, there was only a few professions to choose from and, uh, uh, and now, look – you're only limited by the size of your dreams. That's, that's the modern story. You know, to continue on with that real estate example, uh, you know, what mattered most to our real estate agency was how many people walked by the front glass to look in and see the photos of the houses for sale. And then along came this magazine called The Real Tour, right? right. And, and all of a sudden, you got this free magazine that had photos of houses all over the state. Modern version of freemium. Exactly, yeah. Well, and, and, then, and then the next step was um, that all of a sudden there were colour ads instead of three-line ads in, in the Saturday papers. And, and the next step came along where uh, all of a sudden uh, there was this, this thing called the internet. And, and my brothers sold our unit in 2002, sight unseen, to a guy, an Australian living in London, over the internet. And what that took me from in my short life journey was from someone needing to walk by the front of the shop to someone in the, on the other side of the world buying a unit sight unseen over the internet. And all of a sudden, our little real estate agency went from being a very local community player to a global player. 
and the family business is now going into the hands of the third generation. So, so Mark, Mark one, another question for Joe, and I think maybe a question for Diego as well. I mean, you've talked a little bit, little bit about your family, the culture in your family, Joe, that's driving innovation, I guess, and taking the initiative. Do you think there's a role for government as well? I mean, and, and when I say that, you know, government policy settings in terms of also encouraging that type of thinking and that type of approach, because we do see other countries around the world, mm. you know, such as Israel and some of these countries that seem to have a very deliberate approach around supporting people to do something a little bit different that adds value. And it'd be good to get Diego's viewpoint on that as well. You've travelled around the world, Diego. What do you see? But maybe starting with Joe. Well, you've got to be very careful as a government because especially when you're running big deficits, you don't go speculating on money. The world's awash with money, right? I mean, there's no doubt it has to tighten. And Janet Yellen, I expect, is going to move in the next few weeks on interest rates. And I urged her to move, you know, a month, two months ago, three months ago in in Turkey. They've got to move. There's too much money in the world at the moment. And uh, You just wait about three weeks, so I've got to get my hands on a bit. (laughs) (laughs) You'll you'll be right. I'm I'm pretty confident about that. We're not worried about you, Mark. No, no. But but, but because of all this money, um, they're prepared to go into some level of higher risk investments. So now is the time to move. I think low interest rates are still going to be around for a long time but they're not going to be around forever. So now's the time to have a go. Now's the time to raise capital or get investment. Now's the time to go to those investors and say, back me, I've got a great idea. Um, Therefore, governments, I mean, governments can't compete with that. Governments are, are out of money. And in Israel, what you've got is a model where the government actually puts money in speculates on a business, and if that business doesn't work, then they cut off the funding and so on, right, and they go to the next one. Australia is a very different model. We're somewhere between the United States, where there is very little government investment, but there's a lot of private sector investment, and Israel, where there's a lot of government investment. We sit somewhere in the middle. My view is we are very bad... Governments are very, very bad investors. Very bad investors. Mm -hmm. It's lazy money, uh, and... What governments should do is facilitate private investors. That's why I cut company tax for small business. Uh, that's why I gave, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're already working on uh, providing uh, capital gains tax exemptions for startup businesses. We had a whole lot of initiatives that we put in place, you remember, and, and I wanted those small businesses to go out and invest in themselves. So I gave instant asset write-off in the budget, $20,000, immediately write it off, improve the cash flow with accelerated depreciation, a range of things that facilitated investment rather than the government determining where the money has to go. I'll leave it to people like my mate here uh, to explain why governments are bad investors and why the private sector is... You did a great job, Joe. Is is it? Well, (laughs) this is it. It's true. I think for the sake of controversy, for the sake of controversy, it would have been nicer if I disagreed with Joe, but, but I don't. I don't disagree in that I think governments have fundamentally, in my, in my view, two tools. One is taxation, so you can either stimulate or penalize behaviors, yeah. exactly like Joe was saying. And the second one is regulations. And I think here is one where I think governments around the world in general could do a much better job. We're, you know, essentially we live in a world where labor, as we know it, is, a, is, is changing every day. What, what, I mean, as I always say, what do you think? How many, how many of you remember about the elevator man? I do remember. 
I used to go to visit my grandfather's uh, uh, business. He was in a third floor in an old building in Buenos Aires. And there was an old guy, probably he was like 75 year old guy that drove this really rackety elevator, right? I tell those to my kids, they, can, they cannot believe it. But there's many, many elevators man out there that have lost their job to technology. And actually technology hasn't been bad. If you think about, you know, in, in the world in 1895, 95% of the population of the world was, was occupied in agriculture, all right? That's where all the jobs were. Today, less than 2% of the population in the developed world is in agriculture. So if, effectively, 93% of the, of the jobs have gone to do something else. And, and Argentina in 1901 was the wealthiest economy in the world. Indeed. And Australia was second Indeed. in 1901. Indeed. And now we find ourselves here each other, <laughs> next to each other. So bottom line is that... We, are, we live in a world where things are changing. Governments are really worried about protecting current employment as we know it, because those are the voters, all right? But the reality is by, by, by roadblocking the progress uh, of, of that innovation allows us to do, and the disruption that innovation allows us to do, we are preventing things that will happen anyways. Mm. And I think that that's how countries can fall behind. And I think that's what happened in a lot of maybe in, the, in a lot of the European countries because they are so worried about traditional employment and protecting that traditional employment. I mean, what happens with Uber is, is a clear example, but there's thousands of cases like that. So I think that governments should be a lot more proactive about using regulations to stimulate investments and, and, and innovation. And I think that's, that's a space that there's a lot to be done in that's that. A very, and that's, that's an important point, particularly given Joe's standing, because Joe has a, a slight disadvantage in that he's no longer the treasurer, which means whilst he introduced the business budget in this year, stage one, mm. what people are going to say is the new government, the new government, in other words, the new, the new administration in the current government and the Liberal Party government, um, are going to introduce a whole lot of things. Now, a question for Joe is, Joe, if you had, if you were still treasurer in next year or even this year, would you have gone to stage two of your business budget that you introduced in May? Uh, May yeah, yeah, sure, month, sure, month. sure. I mean, did you have another stage? What yes, would you, yes, what, yes. What you brought through, would you change capital gains tax? Uh, well, no, not necessarily capital gains tax, but for investors um, investing yeah, in startups. Yeah, yeah, yes, we would have uh, for, for startups. We were looking at um, at, at uh, abolishing capital gains tax for startup businesses. It was a, a very good proposal that was put by uh, one of my former colleagues, and uh, and and it was also something we were working on. We we were looking at a a, a tiered taxation system for business. If you give a company tax cut for the largest businesses in Australia, it's basically a tax cut for foreign investors because of the yep. of the franking credit system. So, um, so what I wanted to do was have a tiered system where you had small businesses as low as twenty percent uh, and medium sized enterprises, you know, and it was it was it was going up to the current thirty, uh, which is where uh, big business is at, and of course. With business, there are many more exemptions and, and, and deductions and so on than there are for individuals. The second thing is you've got to get the personal income tax rate lower. I mean, you know, it's all well and good. We're in this comfort zone at the moment where our biggest competitors in Asia have had their own domestic problems. So they've been, uh, you know, going through those changes. At, but sooner or later, their economies are going to strengthen significantly. Their governments are going to continue to give uh, pretty generous taxation cuts uh, and we're competing directly with them, particularly in services. So the national accounts that came out yesterday, great numbers compared to what they could have been given the world economy, 
uh, 0.9% for the quarter. But the big story there is the exports of services. 70% of the Australian economy is services, but it's only 17% of exports. So if we could lift the level of service exports to that of agriculture or mining or something, we would, you know, the prosperity in the nation would be without peer. How would you do it? Uh, well, you've got to break down those regulations. So the free trade agreements, which we negotiated, which did cost us a lot of money and were painful. They wouldn't have happened, for example, if we had have kept writing out checks to the car industry and so on. Yep. So those that industry assistance went. That allowed us to negotiate the first free trade agreement with Korea, particularly on motor vehicles. When we negotiated the agreement with Korea, Japan went, hang on, because they compete with Korea. They said, we'd better get in there. They've been you know, debating it for ages, never prepared to move, Japan. And as soon as Japan moved, China said, hang on, Japan's moving, free trade, we're going with you. All unachievable three years ago, we delivered. The big breakthroughs are in services, particularly in China. You look at China, it's got the, 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 the most significant demographic bubble in the history of humanity. Right. And you'd know this through the health sector in particular. You know, the biggest demographic bubble in the history of humanity is a result of the one-child policy. So what do they want? They want quality aged care. They want quality health care. Uh, health's our biggest sector in Australia, biggest part of our GDP, and certainly the weakest in terms of exports. So how do you go? Well, for example, the technology out of health that you have in Australia, uh, just how to run nursing homes, uh, how to have cosmetic surgery, dental surgery, those sorts of things, massive opportunities in Australia to export into Asia and particularly into China. What would you do? Uh, what would I do? I would, uh, I would be uh, looking at uh, traditional ways of, of exporting, traditional channels, so I don't have to reinvent the channel, right? But I'd be expanding on that with new technology. So, you know, if I was starting life again and, and I'd say done uh, cosmetic surgery, I'd be setting up a centre, maybe in Cairns, uh, because it's closer to Asia, a holistic service centre where, uh, you know, wealthy Chinese can come to Australia, uh, have cosmetic surgery, stay a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, it would parade as a, a holiday for people back home, but it would be a holistic integrated treatment centre in Cairns where they can have quality of life, maybe even their family go out to the barrier. What would you want the government to do regulation-wise to help you? We don't have to. Government doesn't have to. It's already done it. For example, we've already opened opportunities, you know, for nursing homes as part of the free trade agreement uh, with China. The Chinese have said you don't need uh, regulatory approval to set up uh, retirement villages and nursing homes in China. This is an expertise Australia has. Mm. Uh, you no longer have to have that regulation. Financial services, I mean, the, the, the governor of the Bank of China said to me, what can we do to get Australian banks more active in China or financial institutions providing financial advice in China? Massive opportunity. I mean, you know, that's, I'm not going to give away all my secrets because I'm now in the private sector for well, at least for a few days. But, uh, I, I mean, I would... They're against Aussie uh, banks setting up in China. No, they're, China, they're absolutely supportive of it. Yeah, in right. fact, you know, so all, I can say to you the Chinese government wanted Australian banks to invest in their major banks oh, because... Right. Their major banks are behemoths in size, but they're not particularly, uh, you know, contemporary. Mm. And Australian banks, like Australian businesses generally, have a level of integrity 
that is much desired mm. in in Asia. And and one of the great advantages we have is our system of law. Uh, that you have proper you have a proper process for being able to get answers and you can you can prosecute and enforce the law in court but also importantly we've got an integrity that is is much valued by business in china and and asia more generally and i i don't think businesses in australia leverage that up enough right so you you guys in the healthcare sector i mean what 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 do you think about joe's answer so, so I think um, certainly from the hospital services sector, we've just seen in the last few weeks, Ramsey Healthcare announced a significant joint venture into China. Mm. And, and it's, as far as I'm aware, it's the first health-oriented significant investment by an Australian organisation. Um, you know, I think Joe's idea about uh, uh, our expertise being exported as a service, I, I, I you know, from an Australian perspective rather than a J&J perspective, I think that's clearly where we have a huge advantage. Uh, I guess one of the questions I have from uh, the broader discussion is with the change in technology and the move away from traditional industries like the car industry, and we've got all of that expertise in Australia, that wonderful engineering, science, technology expertise, is there a role for medical technology? And it's a genuine question. You know, what can what role does J&J have? What role... I'm also chair of the Medical Technology Association. What role does the broader industry have in embracing, one, this labour force that is now going to be looking for opportunities over the next couple of years? But what contribution can we bring to Australia as a technology hub from a medical point of view, and Chris may have a view from a pharmaceutical perspective as well. Well, I think it's, and just to add to, to Gavin's point, and it'd be good to get both Joe and Diego to talk about it, what is the innovation ecosystem that we should be encouraging? Because it's, yeah, J&J is a big, a big multinational, but there's lots of small Australian businesses that are, you know, leading the way in terms of innovation. There's great, you know, as Diego, tell you, he's just been touring around, there's great translational science here, but there's a real problem in terms of getting the investment to commercialise these great ideas. So, What's the service... Well, just, just outline the problem first. Let, well, tell maybe, me. Diego, you want to outline what the, what the challenge is? Well, um, on, on two levels, you know, we've never had better, a better understanding of biology that, and science than we have today. And so that has opened uh, significant opportunities to change biology. Um, but that requires... Uh, it's, the, the, that business requires a very significant investment. If you're, if you're working in the hard sciences, say engineering, math, physics, uh, all that is, you know, follows very predictable laws. The laws of physics are very predictable. You drop an apple and it will always drop at the same speed, the same foot. velocity. Huh? Drop an apple and it'll fall on your foot. <laughs> right. According always. To you, it? You, <laughs> you, right. you can conduct an exper a biological experiment, you can conduct 10 times and you will have seven results. Yeah. Just because science, uh, biological science is much less predictable. That means that as you try to develop interventions, the chances of success are not guaranteed. All right? So the, the, the success rate of, of this type of endeavors, um, you know, the, the, more you, the more dramatic the impact you want to have, the, the lower chance that it's going to succeed. So in general, you need portfolios. All right? It's, it's very unlikely that you make an investment in one, you're going to be successful. If you make an investment in 20, 
one or two could be successful and they will be so successful that will pay off for your por for, uh, whole portfolio several times over. That's, that's the strategy that is used by, by venture capital groups, all right? And that's how you invest in life sciences. If you don't invest like that, you're gonna get, you're gonna get, they're gonna take you to the cleaners because you're, the, statistically the chances you'll succeed are very low. Mm. So by its nature, the way to invest is in portfolios, all right? I don't see today uh, enough number of companies to provide that portfolio approach for investors. You mean it's because of, because of the capital constraint or there's just not enough with the expertise um, or appetite? I, I think that the capital, the cap, I think it has to have great science. I think there is great science in Australia, but I think that it has to be more applied to product development and that has to be led by, by the, the, the amount of money that comes from investors. Yesterday, for example, I saw a fantastic company in... Uh, in Queensland, that is working on, a, on, a, on an incredible diagnostic for influenza, right? It's an, it's a, it's a, they, they created an artificial handkerchief that you blow on and can determine whether you have influenza in your nasal secretions. <laughs> that has been, you know, funded to a significant amount by, by, one, uh, by one wealthy individual that is a visionary. It has that, nothing to do with life sciences, but it's a person that decided to change the world and invest money on this. I mean, and that was remarkable. I mean, and, and if you saw how they set up the company, I've never seen the, in the States a company like that. They set up in a home, in a neighborhood. I mean, just really, I mean, with, with a, with a, in a very, in a very cost-efficient way in, way in how they invest their money, but they have a first-rate operation, first-rate operation. And in order to commercialize it and make money, they have to go to the States because that's the place where they're going to make their money, all right? <coughs> but if you, I think that is a great example. If you had 300 companies like that, you create an ecosystem of entrepreneurs and investors that fits on itself. Well, Diego, you've seen world's best practice. What are other people doing that create, how do we get 300? What have you seen somewhere else in the world that can get those 300, right? 299 more of these guys. I think you need, uh, you need the right type of scientists, entrepreneurs. I mean, the key element in this equation is the person who understands the science and understands the investment and understands how to make executive decisions to, to move a project forward. Because in general, scientists, especially in the life sciences, are really after the truth. The truth may be practical or may not be practical, all right? So you just find observations, you describe those observations, you publish them, you belong, you're in an, an academic institution, you progress because you're publishing things that you're observing, all right? That's one type of science, but that's not applied sciences. If you want to you know, take care of a diagnosis for influenza, that requires that you are very focused in how you make your decisions. And you may be finding things that are interesting along the way, but you say, no, I'm not going to go down that road because I really want to get this product to the market in three years because I've, I only have $5 million to spend. All right? That requires a very different mentality than someone who's an academic scientist who just simply wants to describe and observe the truth and publish it. All right? So you need to create and, and, and you need to have enough of those people that, are, that know how to do it and drive it forward. And at the same time, you need the, 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 a number of investors to do it as well. I think to Joe, Joe's point early, I think how the government could help there is by, you know, taxation uh, stimuli for people to invest in companies like that. Particularly when you know it's, it's around healthcare and things that could have a, a significant impact on human health. Well, it, it's a good point, and that's one of the reasons why, as I said, we're working on abolishing capital gains tax for startup businesses up to a certain level of, of value. Uh, and look, I expect that'll be part of the the overall tax uh, package that comes out. That 
um, we were working on, but obviously it's being progressed by the new government. Now, you know, Diego makes a very good point. We have great innovation in Australia. The first thing is uh, startup businesses and homes are nothing new. I mean, innovation in the home, Charles Goodyear, of course, that's where he <laughs> discovered the pneumatic tyre on his right. stove, right? I mean, he worked it out after many, many, many failures. Uh, and you look at uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, you know, using the basically bed sheets from the local community to put together uh, the, the, the flyer. So th that's where a lot of the innovation is, home-based businesses. It's a great story, and particularly with the remoteness of Australia, home-based businesses are, um, are very powerful and very successful. With the rollout of the full na national broadband network, initiated by the previous Labor government, and I pay them credit for that, uh, it is going to be a game-changer for Australia. There's no doubt about that. But in area, and you talk about life sciences, in, in 2014, I announced in the budget the Medical Research Future Fund, which is $20 billion by 2020 in this fund. And in, in perpetuity, it's going to deliver a billion a year for new additional medical research, including some facilitating some clinical trials and, and commercialisation. It is the biggest fund in the world. Uh, you know, Bill Gates said that. It's the biggest fund of its kind in the world. Bill and Melinda Gates actually delivers implementation, whereas this is medical research. Australia has been very good at medical research. We've only ever... Com the commitment at the moment is around half a billion dollars for the National Health and Medical Research Council uh, a year. That half a billion dollars a year only supports 15% of the applications. So to have an extra billion kick in you know, mm -hmm. is a massive increase in medical research plus the growth in the general fund means Australia will go from $500 million a year in medical research today to $2 billion a year. So what is it, like a grant? It, 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 yeah, it, it, it would be based on grants and, and effectively it is about backing the medical research. To, uni so to universities? To institutional uh, or to the individuals? No, to the individuals right. and, and in partnership with the universities. That's, that's what yeah, it yeah. is. The, the actual operation of it is still... You know, being a, a legislation passed Parliament only a few months ago, so it hasn't rolled out yet. But the first forty million has been distributed this year, right? This financial year, so it is actually it started the rollout. It already has two billion in it, and it's growing, and it's going to grow to twenty billion by twenty twenty. And it's in legislation. It's done. It received bipartisan support in the end, and then and it's going to be the biggest game changer in in research. So, so I, I, one point about innovation yeah. that is important is yeah. innovation is about experimentation and trial and error. And and in the U.S. has a nice blueprint for government grants into private companies, and is you know the, the law just passed a couple of years ago, and they are looking to see how it works. And essentially, they're called small business grants. And in the past. The government could not put money into an entity that was a private entity where that was supported by investors. Yeah, yeah. The law changed. Yeah. And now I think it's like three and a half or four percent of the NIH budget goes into grants to companies that are owned by investors and is non-dilutive. So, I mean, this, yeah. this is money that goes and support those companies to continue moving forward. So, in a way, the government is putting money in the mix and is, uh, is helping investors continue mo uh, moving so, forward. Well, my argument would be... Government should invest in the product, not the company, right? Or not the entity. And if you, in, 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 in when, so in relation to medical research, you look at the idea that the person has and you back them to develop that idea rather than 
take equity. Like, no, one, the, one the of, government like, doesn't take it. It's a grant. The government is, it provides a, a, a non-refundable grant. A non-diluted. A non-diluted, non So in other words, investors grant. don't get diluted. Well, the money just goes uh, into the company uh, as, as a the gift. Key, yeah. The key there to make it good is the review process and who are the people reviewing and who, are, who is money allocated to. I mean, and yeah. that's, it's almost, it has to work like almost like a venture fund, if you want. That's the type of money in my mind. Right now, it's mostly scientific, the review, but I think it has to be like scientific investment, the review, because the government is going to be allocating money that, you know, the resources are limited, needs are unlimited, and how do you match them? And I think that the... And I think that's part of the evolution of that model is to get the reviews done right with more of a business perspective. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on your side on this. Okay, okay. I, I, well, Australia's, had, Australia's <laughs> tried, tried every model. Oh. Australia's, well, one of the great stories, you'd say, well, the investment model has worked. Pacific Dunlop company, I don't know if it's still around Pacific Dunlop, is it? I don't think so. Um, yeah, well, ironically, they started Cochlear. I think it was Pacific Dunlop started I Cochlear. Didn't know that. And the government took equity in Cochlear. And of course, Pacific Dunlop spun out Cochlear, and Cochlear obviously is much bigger than Pacific Tunlop. Um, and I remember one of the first things that happened when Catherine Livingston, who's now the chair of the Business Council of Australia, she was at Cochlear, she said, can you get the government to wipe the money we owe it? And this is as Cochlear is growing, right? Um, and of course, when they're successful, they want the government to wipe any, any obligations they've got to repay the money. When they're not successful, the government loses money. And I remember as a local member of parliament standing with this company, presenting them a cheque for $4 million. I think the company from memory is called Beehive. And, uh, and about three months later, they went broke. And that $4 million, you know, I, I had to take it off my website, the photo of me <laughs> giving a cheque, taxpayer cheque, and I never, but, ever wanted to give but right Joel, out a cheque. The government does provide grants for research. Well, that's different because you're in, you, in, in terms of research you're looking at what they're producing rather than the entity itself. So, and, and it's very, very, it's basically startup research. It's not, you know, the next point, which is commercialisation. So what we need in Australia is for business entrepreneurs mm. to have the same attitude as they do in the United States. But in Australia, they still haven't got, a lot of investors haven't got their heads around accepting lower returns mm. because interest rates have come down you know, a lot of business and investors are still expecting 10, 12% return, which is ridiculous in the right. low, in, in this world at the moment. And that's what they expect. They right. just want a guaranteed annuity of 10, 12% or something. It's not there. Whereas foreign investors now are coming in, for example, looking at Australian agriculture saying, I'll get an 8% return. And they're rushing in for that return. Whereas Australian investors are still thinking, you know, <laughs> I need to have a higher return, therefore they're not going into agriculture. <laughs> With risk, because they're just taking assumption as massive risk. And I think what Diego's saying is, generally speaking, the, 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 it's a portfolio basis going on overseas Correct. as opposed to here. We, we still haven't got our head around portfolio systems here in, in this country. No, know. because there are too many institutions basically are lazy and go and invest in the ASX, you know, uh, and they've been getting 6 7% return plus exactly. the capital gains. Yeah, they're just they're lazy. ASX 200, and they just have an index-weighted fund, and they say, look, you'll get your money back. Well, we've got to do to those institutions what you did to Japan by doing a deal with Korea. We've got to say to institutions, listen, you can go looking for your 12%, but guess what? There's a whole lot of people going to come into this country and start investing at 8 and 6 and 5 and 4%. Mm. And, in fact, there's a whole lot of people going to start coming into this country and do portfolio-based investment, and they're going to get 2 out of 20 but the two out of twenty, they're going to make a shitload of dough, and they're going to, and you're all going to look embarrassed and um, stupid 
your current investors because you you haven't taken that portfolio approach. What we need, though, is regulatory environment to change to encourage that sort of investment into this country. But I it think, it should, but it should. It, I don't think you need regulatory change. You need attitudinal change. Well, both. No, I, no, I, no, you no, definitely need attitudinal change. Yeah, I don't think oh, government should. First, Joe, which well, comes well, first? Well, attitude, business. No, but Surely. not everyone's got your attitude. Businesses, as you said, uh, in this country, are spoiled. You know, the people who, for a long time, you know, fund managers here. Super funds here, yeah. big, big super funds. You don't go and say, well, we'll invest in um, We have nearly $3 trillion of, of investable funds in Australia. But they don't go invest in startups. They say, oh, no, we'll put this right. money in a Westpac and we'll get out of And you know why? Because, because they're, in my view, they're pretty lazy. They just look at the ASX 200 and say, okay, we'll have a, a you know, a, a index-based investment. Uh, and but if if we were going to go and look at this portfolio that Diego is talking about, that's a hell of a lot of work. We're going to go and investigate nickel and dime companies, and why would we want to do that? That's why we need high net worth individuals who will do that sort of thing, and will also form relationships with the individual businesses. That's one of the strengths in the US that they're looking for the next Facebook or they're no- looking for the next Amazon. And they're high net worth individuals that are prepared to be silent investors or active business partners. And that sort of business mentoring and partnership is, is, key. is it's key. key. Absolutely. Absolutely. Key. And that these people that have made a lot of money in those businesses, they put the money back into new, into new business and new investments and, and, and new startups. You've been I mean, staging, that- Diego. Look, look, I had a business called Wizard and uh, I got the first person, Kerry Packer, mm. as an individual. Kerry came in, bought 50%. But you know what really kicked our business off? I bought in a company called Deutsche Asset Management. And Deutsche Asset Management in those days represented three of the Australia's largest super funds, CSS, PSS yeah, right. and State Super. We sold them to them. And they put in, they put in $60 million into Wizard. That made the difference because that allowed us then to go off and buy the wholesale business where all the technology sat which is what turned but, the, our Wizard business into something great. And hang on, Joe. And you, by the way, one of the greatest supporters of yeah. Wizard and Aussie and Rand. Securitisation. But you were. You and the Treasurer at the time, Costello. You guys in those days used to get into Parliament (laughs) and used to say, and Joe got me big time one time. I've got to tell this story. (laughs) In 2001, 2001, uh, we, 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 2000 was a tough year. 2001 election, election year, it was a uh, Howard government was going to, have to go for election and the interest rates had been going up right up until about, uh, kept going up, up, up in this country about 2000. And 2001 looked like it was going to be the first Reserve Bank board meeting in February 2001 where the Reserve Bank is going to reduce interest rates. And uh, we did something. In those days when interest rates were reduced, you passed on the redu- reduced interest rate to the consumer in about six weeks. When interest rates went up, you passed it on straight away to the consumer, like 10 days. And, uh, and I got a phone call from Joe Hockey, who was the Minister for Financial Services at the time, and I think financial services came under Treasury. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Joe said to me, he said, uh, listen, uh, we're going into Parliament because in those days the government here could actually build your business up for you in, in that they were not scared. They hated the banks. They stood up to the banks and they said to the banks, if you do this, you do that, we're going to uh, rip into you in Parliament, and which is what they used to do. And they actually helped business like Wizard and Aussie Rams get up to where we got to, 20% market share. Joe said to me, he said, are you going to pass on the interest rate reduction uh, straight away or over a period of six weeks? And I said, well, I don't know about that. And Kerry was my partner and he said, look, <laughs> what I would like to see happen is you to pass on the interest rate quickly. Um, so I, I said, oh, okay, well, I'll get, let me go back to Kerry Packer. I went back to Kerry Packer. He said, well, we're going to go into Parliament shortly. He said, I need an answer. So I went back to Kerry and I said, Kerry, 
Hockey's rung me up, blah, blah, blah. And Kerry said, listen, son, don't you fuck this up. He said, because every time you pass on interest rate reductions, you know, at a speed, we lose so much per day relative to what we would ordinarily earn. I said to him, okay, I'll make a call on it. So I said to Joe, I can't remember exactly the number of things. I said something like, we'll pass on in 12 days, which then was a big, big change, six weeks. Joe said, no problem. He said, he rings me back and he says, uh, listen, he said, uh, I've, I don't know who he spoke to. I, I think it was Westpac with Dave Morgan. He said, uh, one of the banks is going to do it in 10 days. Can you do better? And I went, fuck, Kerry's thinking that he's going to kill me if I stuff this up. Anyway, I think I went back and said something at like nine days. Well, I never know to this day, nor will I know Joe Hockey standing here right now, did you actually speak to a bank? Because we passed on nine days. That changed that government encouragement, Diogo. And it was actually encouragement. Intimidation. We intimidation. I would like to call it encouragement, but it was intimidation <laughs> um, because, you, if, because if whoever, whoever did it was going to get announced as someone who did something great, we changed the way interest rates are passed on low reductions and increases from that day on. The banks absolutely were really totally pissed off because it lost tens of millions of dollars for them per month in terms of the amount of time they passed it on. Um, that sort of encouragement was extraordinarily important for organisations like me who were considered a, we were a start-up and then we became a disruptor and we changed but, the way but things happened. You know, it's, it's a great story, Mark. What, what do you say? Because it comes back to innovation, right? Wait up, Joe. Were you bullshitting? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the banks? I never bullshit. Uh, and, and, but, it, but it comes back to... Well, never. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's got you, one you know, crossed under the mate, table there. It, it comes back to innovation, right? And, and you know, when securitisation came in in Australia, and this, this adds to that story if I've got a second, when securitisation came into Australia, the then Labor government had what was known as the Privacy Act. And Mark doesn't know this story. I was working in a law firm called Cause, and I was a junior, you know, solicitor in banking and finance. And we were doing the securitisation of David Jones' charge cards. It was the only transaction in Australia at that time. We were in recession. And David Jones, which was owned by Adsteam from memory, was basically going under. This icon of Australian retailing was going under. And they sold the debt on their charge cards. The guy that organised the transaction is now the chairman of ASIC, Greg Medcraft. Yeah, he was at He was at SockGen. SockGen, remember. And, and what happened was he was our client and he did the deal for $180 million for David Jones. His fee was $17 million. Whoa. I know. That's, that, there was no other deal in Australia. And what happened was the government had introduced a Privacy Act that prevented the sale of private information from one entity to another. Now, I, I was going, I was a junior schmuck, I was in the Young Liberals, and I went to the partner and I said, listen, I think we can change this if we get the Senate to move an amendment. And this partner said, you're kidding me, right? you guys aren't even in government, what would you know, you're 20, 23, 24 years of age, you, you know, get out of here, right? And anyway, the deal was going to fall over, and Puma and all these guys involved in securitisation were never going to get off the ground. So I said, we can do it. And I rang up Robert Hill, who was in the Senate, and he said, look, I'll go across to the Labor guys, the government, and see if we can move an amendment. This was never intended to prevent this thing called securitisation. And they moved, and it's still on Hansard in the Senate, the cause amendments, which we drafted, and they changed the Privacy Act to allow the sale of private information when there's a default. And then... The securitisation industry absolutely exploded. And you, you, being a young liberal and a, and a junior solicitor at cause, yeah. 
were able to, because you're a young Liberal, talk to Robert Hill, who then got, went to Parliament, who changed the regulatory exactly. environment, which allowed the technology of securitisation to change the way and, things happen in this country. And, and that's where you've got to be bold and you've got to back yourself. And it's not just me. The brand, I think it's the branding industry in Tasmania. Have you heard the story about the branding industry in Tasmania? Great story, which I only learned about a year ago. These few mates are sitting around, you know, drinking... I think it, it might be whiskey or brandy. I can't remember one or the other. I think it's a whiskey industry. Whiskey industry. Yeah, and yeah. and they, they were sitting around, that's right, whiskey. And there was a limit under the legislation on what you could actually do. You weren't allowed to set up your own distillery. And these guys thought, how am I, how am I going to do it? This tastes pretty good. We want to commercialise it. So they went to their local member of parliament who then went to Nick Bolkus, who changed the law to allow them to set up their own distillery and get approval. And from that time on, the industry has just taken off. The interesting thing is um, that it was one of the big players overseas, might have been, I think, Johnny Walker, I can't quite remember, who actually helped to facilitate the growth of the industry in Tasmania, not because they saw it as a threat, but because they saw it as expanding the industry to the benefit of everyone. So what would you say to the New South Wales government about Uber then? Oh, look... From my perspective, um, and this is the, a personal yeah, issue, yeah, yeah, a personal view. Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, Uber is a disruptor. Um, I used Uber for the first time the other day. And, <laughs> Uber uh, X or Uber Black? Uh, uh, Uber, Uber, Uber X. X. Uber X. X. And, and um, I must say, the only thing that was disarming for me was that they all wanted selfies afterwards. When they <laughs> 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 but uh, it was. It was, you know, it was a terrific experience, 5.30 in the morning in Brisbane, right? I needed to get to the, to the airport. And um, it, was e- it, was, it was easy. And my view about it is that you should properly compensate the owners because the government has collected oh, a lot cab, of fees. Of the, oh, the cabs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The government has collected a lot of fees over a long period of time. The government should properly compensate the taxis, the taxi industry, and allow the market to operate. And, and because if, what happens is... When you get a licence, a lot of people, like the late Kerry Packer, made a lot of money out of government licences. Mm. Government licences are basically a monopoly. And what, you know, basically, I yes. mean, it's all, all part yes. of an oligopoly. And, and, you know, and, and what it is is it is an entitlement to operate exclusively in a particular industry. Right. Licences are increasingly of little value. So whether it be casinos who are disrupted by the internet, uh, taxi industry by Uber, uh, broadcasters, free-to-air TV stations are paid a lot for their licence. Financial services. Financial like services, increasingly. And mm. it's all to the disadvantage of the public. I mean, those licences end up being to the disadvantage of the public. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and in, in energy, we're going to see... So the biggest disruptors are going to be in energy. They're going to be in financial services. Uh, you know, and, and, and you see the advent of things like blockchain and a range of other things. It's going to transform the world, right? right. Transform the world. That's fantastic. That's so exciting because it empowers consumers. And you think government should open the pathway for it? Absolutely. Break it open. So the regulatory environment needs to be busted. Well, it it has come a long way, Mark. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I agree, man. I made money out of it. Innovation has to be in the regulatory environment as well because I think regulations need to be updated all the time. So you think which comes first? The regulatory regulations always follow, mate. Do you think they should follow or they should they no, get no, ahead no. of it? They should facilitate, but they always follow. Follow, I, I, I think that the sequence is more mixed. Uh, I think that sometimes by regulations you can open spaces that wouldn't, wouldn't exist and wouldn't thrive. 
And I think that, uh, for example, what's happening with the solar industry in the, in the United States, uh, you know, it's exploding right now. And one of the things they've done is because, of course, the utilities don't want solar energy. No. Uh, you know, you're producing free energy. Plus, also, it's very disruptive for them as well because you're putting, uh, you're putting energy in the, in, the, in, the, in the net without really real control of understanding how much you're producing. So what the government did is forced, uh, and this, this is ahead of its time because it, it forced the, the, the utilities to provide to the first 5% of all the households that, that sign up a net on net. That means that you can use the energy that, that you put into the, into the, into the net it's, it, 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 you take it off of the energy you use regardless of when you use it, yeah. okay? Because when you produce solar energy, I produce, a, you know, there's sun now, I turn the air conditioning, I can use our energy, but in the evening when my refrigerator runs, in theory, I have to pay for that energy because I'm sucking it out from the, from the, from the net. But the way it works right now is it all, it all, it all nets, at, net, nets out until the first 5%. And that was, you know, strong regulation that was introduced on the utilities and that has made the industry explode. Everybody's getting solar energy in the United States. And that has really been very good for the industry because there's a lot of solar, solar companies. And I strongly feel that, you know, that, that, that's how you stimulate a lot of investment. And uh, that came, I think that those regulations came before the, the, the technology in a way. That, that has expedited the technological development because now everybody wants solar. But then, for example, there's other elements like, uh, you know, I, I met Elon Musk, who was one of the most thrilling uh, oh, moments you know, of my I'm, life. I'm, Really want to make that go. Everyone's yeah. got a man crush on that one. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. But I'm, well, I'm just saying, bold, isn't no, he? I mean, he's yeah, bold. yeah, yeah. The guy takes uh, takes risks that are unbelievable. I mean, he yeah. he bet he bet the house. He's charismatic though. Like, you watch him on like TED talks and things. He's it it quite... depends on one. I met him. What are you one, after? One, a celebrity, I... or you're after you know someone no, that's no, actually going to show you how to I make mean, money? He's, and... he's someone that's known for his achievements. for his. Nobody has it all. Yeah. All right, but I'm telling you, if you want to change the world, I, I can yeah. think of few people like him. Yeah. Uh, what he's done to the private rocket industry, I mean, the space industry. Yeah. He put he put NASA out of business. Yeah. And, and battery you know, technology, which yeah. is the, I mean, the and, big and, and then and then the electric cars. Oh, I mean, yeah. before Elon Musk, it was a joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, now it's serious. Now all the German manufacturers, everybody's making electric cars now. But he, he but he's started, not cars. He's battery technology, effectively. Because he realized yep. the key yep. is in the storage of correct. energy. Correct, correct. And so he built a car around the batteries. And now what he's doing with his plant in Nevada, he's already, he, you know, people, when he said he announced a plant in Nevada you know, to make batteries, people said he's crazy. I mean, he's never going to be able to sell that. Well, I mean, like he's oversold. I mean, he's thinking of building another one because he realized a key element is the battery at the home. Because yep. if you have the battery at the home, Game then over. renewables yeah. renewables are feasible. You yeah. know, wind, because everybody says, okay, wind and solar, yeah. we cannot use them at night. Yeah. But that's because you don't store it. If you can store that energy, that's a complete game changer. Yeah. So now everybody wants to have a, a, a wall in the house with batteries. And okay? this is the key, right? This is where you say regulation or, or, or markets, you know, we all talk about climate change. We're all concerned about climate change. If you're worried about coal usage uh, and, and increasing usage of coal, don't worry, in a sense, if that innovation keeps going because what you're going to find is that, that the biggest disruption is going to be in the energy sector over the next 20 to 30 years. And you're going to see storage of energy and, and utilisation of different sources of energy completely disrupt the coal industry uh, and, and... So the market's and going to do it. The market is going to do it, 
rather than government step in and say, look, you're all sacked, which is what the Greens and others have always wanted, right, that is the wrong way to approach it. The way to approach it is to facilitate that facilitate that new technology. And that's because of the, that's the economics of markets let's, are perfect. Let's, correct. Exactly. For example, let's, let's finish that thought at the uh, at the coffee shop, Joe. We've got to wrap the show. Sorry, guys, we've run out of time for the day. Yeah, but I, well, just, Diego Morales, um, thank you very, very much for coming in. But what I really hope happens is that when you're staying here in this country, that you get to meet as many politicians as you possibly can and you drive into them your experiences and what's worked and what doesn't work both locally, what you're understanding is what's locally, but particularly overseas. Just rip in. Okay, and on. use can that I enthusiasm. Can, can I give you one? Rip, rip one? into the investors, mate. Uh, but no, 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 but the investors are always going to agree to him, with him. They're, they're, they're just going to follow. Joe, I'm, I'm going to tell you one space yeah. that I think where Australia can be, you know, yeah, we can, hear build, this. Can, be, can be in an industry in the next 50 years, and it's nuclear power. Yeah, sure. Because in Europe and the United States, because of the politic, silly political issues, yeah. there's no, there has been no, no technological evolution. If you, if you learn about, you know, the new reactors that can be made that are unbelievably safe, yeah. so much cheaper, but they cannot do it because I, of regulations. I, I had a com- conversation with someone on Monday night this in Perth with a guy called Chris right. Ellison. You know Chris yeah, Ellison? Yeah, yeah, Chris and I, I did with Chris Ellison Monday night in Perth. And Chris said to me, he would love, I asked him, what thing would you love first and foremost for the government? He said, I'd like to change the laws in relation to nuclear, nuclear, mobile nuclear energy Absolutely. sources. He said to take to the mines that he's developing around Australia and not have to rely on all the other grid electricity. But, but, but this, is, this is happening. South Australia, to the great credit of Jay Weatherall, the Premier, is having a royal commission into the entire nuclear industry South Australia has the capacity to take it from cradle to grave and, and back again. Uh, and I, I believe they've got bipartisan support from the federal government. This is, uh, in my view, it is going to happen. And one of the great people that deserve great credit was Bob Hawke, the former mm. Prime Minister in Australia, who has always been a strong advocate for storage facilities. And this is, this for the state that has, you know, has had the weakest economy, it is the biggest opportunity for prosperity. Well, why don't they just say, okay, just, not just the stories, why don't you just say, listen, you, you, you bring in this uh, mobile yeah, yeah. plant, the plant actually uh, stores the, the waste anyway, right. and you say to the people who you import it from, which is probably German or French, you say, the deal is I'll buy this, bring it to Australia, when, I've, when it gets reached the end of life, you take it back. No, 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 but they won't take it back, Mark. There's the thing, it's too far too fast. You've got to be careful here. So we have the uranium, you get it out of the ground, right, you process it, Appropriately, you ship it out of Australia, and then when it comes, and then it comes back. So it's used, yep. you get the benefit. It comes back, it's processed again, and potentially used again. That's what we have the yeah. capacity to do. So we've actually got the manufacturing, the usage, and so on. You're talking about the tertiary technology. We're not the community in Australia is not there yet with that tertiary technology. I mean, you can look at, for example, nuclear subs. Right, the technology behind them is so sophisticated and so complex. Basically, you know, the only sophisticated nuclear subs in the world, the, the you know, probably are the American ones. Even the Americans had to help the British with their own nuclear technology for submarines. So there's there's steps and there's steps. Uh, and I think when it comes to because of what happened in Japan, even the legacy issues of Chernobyl, I think you've got to go through the steps. And to the credit of the South Australian government. They are going through those steps. But I agree, it is a massive opportunity for Australia. Massive. We could be the, the biggest exporter. In the world we, and we, we can be done. We could be the biggest exporter of energy 
in the world. Oh, technology. I mean, the, yeah, 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 yeah. And the technology, the technology for, for to revolutionize the nuclear industry, mm. I mean, it's stagnant right now because, you know, being shutting down and plants it be everywhere. Here. And it should we're be here. Wrap. We're going to wrap. Okay. Let's wrap. Okay. Why well, not? Uh, and I want to and, and, and say thank you very much to the J&J guys for coming in today and also for, for facilitating Diego to be here. Like, that's, like, it's so cool to have someone of a global reputation in our, in our humble little studios. And, Joe, I want to say to you is, uh, to me, one of the great treasures of this country. I want to Thanks, say that. And I have had a long, long experience with you and yeah. uh, in particularly going back to financial services. Not many people understand the importance of what you did and what Costello did in those days to change how banking became more fair, fairer in this country. Unfortunately, we had a swan period and, uh, you know, and I went through that period in the Financial Service Advisory Council <laughs> and, I, and I have to say it was, a, it was a dead period and it was difficult to pick it back up again. Um, Joe Hockey, uh, you've left a great legacy for this country. I think Thanks, every Australian wishes you the very best in your future. And uh, I hope one day I get to meet you over there in Washington. That fancy house you're going to. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, mate. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Mm-hmm.